Hello, docs at church. My name is David. I'm one of the guys on staff here. If you've got a Bible, pull it out. We're in Acts 6. All right, Acts chapter 6. And uh, today we're getting to the story uh, of a man named Stephen. All right, Stephen is the first Christian martyr. Uh, he, he was kind of one of the first deacons of the church. And Stephen, as I've been kind of studying his life this week, I would describe him as this. I would describe Stephen as a man who was completely consumed with the Holy Spirit in his life and in his death. And so, and so honestly, what I want to do is, is I wrote like, I mean, I don't even know, like five different sermons on this. This, this text really impacted me, and I kind of had to just pick one of them, and so this is the one you guys got. Uh, th- this story of Stephen has challenged me a lot. Uh, it's convicted me a lot, um, and it, it's honestly given me like kind of, not necessarily a new vision for my life, but it's it's... Sometimes you read the Bible, you know, and like every time you read the Bible, it, you'd get changed a little bit. But sometimes you, you read the Bible and you're like, oh, I think like I, God like really did something in this text. And so God's done that in, in my life with this text. And I'm, I'm praying and I've been praying this week that he do the same thing with you as well as we look at this, this man named Stephen. So this is Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 8. I'm just going to read his story. It says, And Stephen... Full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and they disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Right? So he's he's like preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming who Jesus is. And there's all these like kind of religious leaders and these kind of philosophers of the day and they kind of bring all kind of their great scholars kind of against Stephen and they're like, well, surely these people will be able to shut him down and they, they can't do it. They can't shut him down. They can't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he's speaking. And so then in verse 11, it says, they secretly instigated men who said, oh, we've heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so they stirred up the people. And the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? So the same people that hold a false trial for Jesus, they are now doing the exact same thing for his servant, Stephen. And they accuse him of blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and the temple. And after each of these false witnesses kind of come forward and give their testimony, they look back at Stephen for a response, right? What are you gonna to say to this? And it says that his face was shining like the face of an angel, right? These beings who kind of exist in the presence of the glory of God. And, and it's really interesting that this happens, right? There's so much here, and like honestly, like you could take this for like 20 minutes and just talk about just this one thing, but it's amazing what's happening, right? Because they're saying like, like Moses, like, and it's like you're speaking against Moses. Well, who, when, remember when Moses, his face was shining kind of like an angel's on Mount Sinai? Like when he was receiving the law and your face shines like that when you're in the presence of God and actually God's presence was the thing that filled the temple. And so like all the accusations they're bringing against him when they look back up at him and go, what do you have to say for this? It's like just his face shining is basically saying like, oh no, I'm not, 
speaking against God and against Moses and against the law and against the temple, I'm experiencing the fulfillment of all of those things. And the high priest, even kind of like looking at him, he says, are these things true, these accusations? And what Stephen does in this moment is amazing. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He has memorized so much of Jesus' story and the story of the whole Bible. And so what he does, he just starts preaching. And his sermon is unbelievable. I'm serious, it's, it's incredible. Um, when I first was reading this sermon, like most of my life as a Christian, and even up until this week, I would always read this sermon and be like, I don't really get what you're saying, I don't get this. It just seems like he covers like the story of the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden he gets really mad in the middle of it, and then they kill him. And you're like, oh, that's weird, okay? Like that's what I thought, honestly, the whole time reading this, but I've dug deeper into it. I'm amazed by this sermon. It is complex, it's profound, it is genius. Uh, we have almost no time to get into it. So we won't, but the thing that you need to know about the sermon is that it isn't him. He's not the one speaking it, it's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is doing exactly what Jesus said he would do back in Luke's first letter, Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Luke 12, 11, it says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And what the Spirit of God does through Stephen is he takes each of these accusations they bring against him, and the Spirit of God turns those things back around into an accusation against them. And he does this subtly and gracefully. <laughs> he's pulling them further and further along into this sermon, into the story he's telling, because he's telling them their story, and Jewish people love hearing their story, but all the while he's doing this, he's weaving together one of the strongest rebukes that we see in the entire Bible. And he starts by telling the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he kind of ends with how, remember like, you know, Isaac had Jacob and then Jacob had these 12 sons. And he kind of ends with saying like, yeah, remember how all of kind of these patriarchs all sold their brother into slavery, right? The one that God had raised up to save you. Remember how your father has actually abandoned him to die? And he goes, remember Moses? And they're like, yeah, Moses, we love Moses. We're about Moses. And he goes, yeah, the other guy brought, God kind of brought you to lead you out of slavery. Remember how your fathers also rejected him and didn't follow his leadership either? And he's like, remember the law, the thing you love and cherish so much, the thing you are so about? And they're like, yeah, we love the law. And he goes, yeah, remember how the very first thing that you did when God was writing it on the tablets was you chose to worship a false God instead of the real God? And remember how the whole story of Israel is essentially one big story of the people God chose as his people actually worshiped other gods instead of the true God? And you know the temple, this place that you revere so much? And they're like, yeah, the temple. He says, yeah, the temple that David couldn't even build because of his sin. Remember the last chapter of Isaiah? This strong rebuke that God is way, way, way bigger than your tiny attempt to rebuild this temple. And the thing he actually demands of you is not your sacrifices, but actually your humility and your repentance before his word. And I'm saying that a little bit stronger than he says it, but that's essentially a summary of his sermon, okay? And then he gets to verse 51. And then in verse 51, everything that he says comes to a head and he like takes this thread that he's weaved through the whole story of the Bible and he like pulls it all into one place and everything gets tied together. His sermon builds to its crescendo. He's standing before kind of the most powerful people in the Jewish world at this time. And this is what he says. In strong, bold defiance of their authority, appealing to a greater authority, Jesus he says, you stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as given by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I don't exactly understand what that looked like, uh, but <laughs> it wasn't good, okay? Um, this, was, this was not good. But this is what Stephen does. Stephen takes like the knife of God's word and, and he drives it like through their present moment all the way back through their entire history. And he's saying, you're not doing God's will but you are stubbornly refusing where God's trying to lead you. You are not those who are actually marked out through following his covenant, but you are actually uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. And your fathers that you always appeal to and look back to, they're not actually these spiritual giants, but they killed the prophets that God sent to them. And they killed them because they were talking about the righteous one that was to come, and his blood is now on your hands. You have to understand, for, for Jewish people, right, because this is a sermon for Jewish leaders, it's very technical, it's very complex, it's hard for most of us to understand. But this is one of the most scathing rebukes these, poss- these people could possibly receive. He aligns himself with, him, with them, like he's, like he's Jewish, right? So he's saying like, our fathers did this. So he isn't just like speaking down to them, he's speaking on their level, but he doesn't present himself as better than them, but make no mistake, he brings down the hammer, like, this is not a soft sermon at all. Like, it's crazy what he says. And actually, after he reads it, you're like, oh my gosh, like, you said that, like, in front of all these people? And he did. He did. And I just, really quick, I just want to just one note on this, okay? Stephen doesn't soften the message of grace, right? Because the message of grace that God loves you, it, it comes next to this thing of you are a rebel in need of grace, and he doesn't soften it. He doesn't kind of water down the gospel. And, and I think we have this idea that that's what we need to do with the gospel when we share it with people is we need to water this thing down because it's kind of sharp edges and it's kind of unpalatable. So we should kind of soften it for people so that they might be able to receive it. When you soften the gospel, you do not make it more palatable. But what you do is you strip it of its power. The message of Jesus is that every human being stands condemned full of sin and full of rebellion with the wrath of God and justice marking their end future of their story unless they receive the grace of Jesus. And we don't help the message of Jesus by minimizing that or by not talking about that. But the power of the gospel message is that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, the power of the gospel is that while we were those people in rebellion to him, that is when he died for us. And it's actually, that's how he shows the kind of love he had for us. And so Stephen brings the hammer down. And he says, this is who you really are. He preaches one of the most intense and scathing sermons we read in the New Testament, and they are mad, but this isn't what gets him killed. They're just grinding their teeth at this point, but what he says next is what gets him killed. Look at verse 54. It says, now when they had heard these things, and they were enraged, and they they ground their teeth at him, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And, and so he said, he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses, they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. This, this man and this story that deserves our full attention this morning. Our full attention. Not because this man is great, but because he is a man who is filled with the spirit of God. And the spirit of God makes men great. He's one of the first deacons in the early church. And he is a man of tremendous spiritual power and unstoppable force against the enemies of God, so much so that the only thing they can do to stop him is kill him. And they do. And what is incredible about Stephen's story and so many Christians who followed his footsteps is that he doesn't fight for his life. He doesn't try to overpower those who are killing him, but with his eyes set to heaven, staring in the face of Jesus, he uses his very last breath not to curse them, but to pray for them and to forgive them. And after the last and heaviest stones do their work and the blood of Stephen begins to soak into the ground, the last words that he spoke, they ring in the ears of those who stood around his shattered body. Who is this man? With his eyes set to the heavens, unmoved, unshakable. Who is this man so fearless and bold in the face of such strength and such horror? Who is this man who uses his dying breath not to curse his murderers, but to bless them? The answer is that he is a Christian. He's a Christian. He, but he is a Christian filled with the spirit of God, a man absolutely consumed by the things of God. And as this great saint of God has his blood spilled on the front lines of God's war against sin and death, what seems to be a victory for the enemies of God is soon found to be a tremendous mistake. Because as the blood of this mighty man of God seeps into the ground, it, it's like as though like the gates of hell, like they start to rattle. And it's as though like this wind starts to sweep into the camp because with the last breath of this dying man, he has prayed. And the one who stands on the right hand of the throne of God has heard his prayer. And from the moment that Stephen's blood is spilled, the story of Acts is gonna actually take a radical turn. Persecution will increase, but as persecution increases, the gospel begins actually spreading out from Jerusalem to the very edges of the earth, and we are introduced to a new character in the story, this man named Saul, the one who people lay their robes at his feet as Stephen is being stoned, but he is also the one that Stephen has prayed for. And God will change him from being the greatest opponent of Christianity to the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen. God answers the prayers of Stephen by forgiving and saving the very man who was in charge of spilling his blood. And instead of crushing the movement of God, this man will meet Jesus. 
And he will be the one that Jesus will use to take the gospel to the very edges of the world. And as we come to this part of the story of Acts, and we just come face to face with this man who doesn't just give his life to Jesus, but even in his death, he's proclaiming the name of Jesus to the very end. He's living like Jesus more than maybe any person has ever lived like Jesus before. Like his whole story mimics the story of Jesus if you read it. And so the question I've been asking all week from this story is I've just come face to face with this, this man named Stephen. It's just this, what is the ambition of my life? And for you, what is the ambition for your life? Like what drives you? What controls you? Like what is the, the central thing that you wake up in the morning, you set your imagination and your power and your money and your time towards that thing? What is your ambition with your life? And the question I've been asking is this, is the thing that I am living for, is that thing also worth dying for? Is the thing I'm living for actually also worth dying for, actually worth my blood, my life, not just my sweat equity and my time and my money, but every single thing that I have laid down as a pleasing sacrifice for that ambition? Is my ambition something that's actually worth dying for? But even more than that, this is the question I've been asking. Does the ambition of your life and your spiritual power make the enemies of God hate and fear you or are you spiritually unthreatening to God's enemies? Like you, the ambition of your life, the things you are striving for and fighting and toiling for, like the spiritual power that is in your life, does that make you a potent foe to God's enemies? Or are you the kind of Christian that they're not really that concerned about? You're not really a very spiritually powerful person. It's not your ambition. All I want to do is just look at two things, Stephen's life and Stephen's death, and I just want to show you a few things that I've been thinking about this week. Okay, Stephen's life. It's a life filled with the Spirit of God. And the very first thing I want you to see is that like, the life filled with the Spirit is a life of service. Okay? Now, last week, we're introduced to Stephen, right? He's one of the deacons. As they're looking around the church, and like, I mean, the, the whole like, thing of like, feeding everyone, that's not going so well. And so the apostles basically appoint these people, and they say, hey, like, who's... Who's someone who could do this job and do it well and do it with, with wisdom and honor? Who are people who are going to do a great job? And Stephen's one of the people that's kind of placed up. He's one of the deacons. And so Acts 6.5 says this, they show Stephen. Why? Well, because it says he was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. This is what it says in verse 8. The beginning of our text today, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And, and then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, kind of like all these different people from everywhere, right? They bring them together and they rose up and they start disputing with Stephen, right? His wisdom about Jesus, we're going to try to crush that with our knowledge, our scholarship, our power. And it says in verse 10, but all of these people, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This is what I've come to the conclusion of. Your position and your role in the church doesn't really matter. What really matters is whether you are someone who's filled with the Spirit of God or not. 
I mean, think about that. What's his role? Like his role in the church, his role is to help oversee the food distribution. Think about that. It's a service-oriented role. He's like the guy who comes in early and sets up the sound equipment. He's like the guy who's responsible for making sure that like the right number of chairs are set up so that when we all come in, we don't sit on the floor, right? Like he's making this stuff happen. Now he has responsibility and he has an important role. He's keeping the church on track. He's keeping it working, but he isn't one of the apostles, He isn't even one of the main leaders. He isn't even one of the elders. He is the guy who oversees the food line. And yet this is a man who is absolutely consumed by the things of God. It says he's full of grace and full of power. And I don't know about you, but I love this. Like I've been thinking about this all week. I love this. It's like, think about this from the perspective of like the Pharisees, the religious leaders. You're trying to lock up the apostles and you're trying to throw them in prison because you think that the power of this movement is flowing from them. And you think if we can just lock these guys up then the movement is gonna be over, let's get the leaders. And then you turn around and there's a bunch of priests who are being converted to Christianity and there's this murmur kind of running through the town of this guy who's doing these signs and wonders and you find out that the guy who's causing all of this commotion is the soup kitchen guy. Like, I love that. Like, think about that from the perspective of them. Like, it's hilarious. Like, the warrior that is, like, slashing your ranks, he's, like, gutting you from the inside of your organization. Who is at the front of this movement? Who is the tip of the spear that is moving forward with courage and power and signs and wonders? It's essentially the lunch lady, okay? Like, that's what it's saying. And and I'm, I'm serious about that. Like, this should do a few things for us. Like it should cause us to like rethink some things. First, it should mean that we should not get swept up into this idea that is not a Christian idea, it is the world's idea that the only positions of influence and power and value are positions of authority. That's not a Christian idea. That is the world's idea. And we should get that out of the church and out of our minds. One of the most influential and powerful people in the early church was the man serving the soup. He wasn't busy climbing to the top of the organization. He was busy climbing to the bottom. He wasn't trying to get the head seat at the table, but he was waking up early to help fix the food so that he could serve everyone at the table. And this is not a lesser role in the kingdom of God. But Stephen is doing exactly what Jesus told him to do if he wanted to be great in the kingdom. Jesus says, if you want to be great, then be the servant of all. And we shouldn't be stunned when people who obey what Jesus tells them to do actually get the thing that Jesus promised to give them. So Stephen climbs down beneath everyone else. He serves the tables. And he's the first Christian we see that is so spiritually dangerous and powerful that God's enemy's only course of action against him is to kill him. It's the first thing we should see. Your role and position in the kingdom isn't what's important. What is important is whether you are someone who is filled with the spirit of God or not. Your position and role doesn't matter. Your spiritual power is what matters. And Stephen had power because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the second thing I think this should do is it should give us a vision for our lives. The tip of the spear, right? The one doing the signs and wonders, the one that can't withstand his wisdom and his spirit. He isn't an apostle. He's not an apostle. 
Like that, that fact has been blowing my mind all week, right? Because I think we read stories about like Peter and, and, and Paul and like these guys who like their shadows would fall on people and they're getting healed and you're like, well, that's amazing. And it's like, yeah, they're apostles. Stephen's not. He is just a normal Christian guy. What makes him so powerful? Well, it says that he's a man filled with faith and it says that he's a man who is filled with the spirit of God. Now we should stop for a moment here because why are these things singled out? Because don't all Christians have faith? Isn't that like the thing you need to be a Christian? Yeah. And, and don't when you have faith in Jesus Christ, you, you receive the Holy Spirit? Yeah. But there's something markedly different about Stephen than the people around him, right? The people around him know it. When they're like, who should be a deacon? They're like, this guy. The people around him know there's something different about him and the enemies of God know there's something different about him. When you become a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God puts his Holy Spirit in you. That is true of everyone who's in Christ. But how much you live your life according to that new spirit within you, you play some role in answering that question. He's given you his power. He's given you his spirit. But how much you actually live according to that gift he's given you, you play some role in answering that question. Now, this isn't some kind of like Christianity 2.0 or some like hidden knowledge that Stephen figured out and we need to learn. That's not what this is, no. But it's like the flame of the spirit of God that Jesus gives you. You can either orient your life so that you fan it into flame or you can orient your life so that you're constantly dousing it with water. Which one do you spend most of your time doing? Because we're, we're always doing one of these two things. There's no kind of neutral thing happening in our lives and in our world. We're either dousing the thing God's trying to do in us or we're fanning it into flame. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. He says, for while bodily training is of some value, Rob, just kidding, um, godliness is of value in every way. <laughs> just, just a joke. Okay. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And he says, this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He says, for to this end, this godliness, we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. And look what he says in Philippians 3. He says, not that I've already obtained this. He's kind of talking about like union with Christ and being joined to Jesus made like him. And he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have already made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, let those who are mature think in this way. God doesn't make some Christians into lions and then some Christians into lambs. He doesn't give some of us a spirit of power and others of us a spirit of weakness and fear. What he does is he gives everyone the spirit of his son, Jesus. When you come to faith in Christ, he puts inside of you the power of God that endlessly rails against the gates of hell with the unstoppable fury of the Almighty. That is the Holy Spirit, and that is what he has given you. And I think what Stephen did is he just took that seriously. He just took that seriously. 
And in order to take that seriously, I think he probably started to get rid of some of the distractions in his life. He started to look at his life and he just said, you know what? I don't think this thing's helping. I think this thing is like water for this flame. I'm going to get that out of here. I don't think this is helping. I'm going to get this out of here. He probably started to get rid of some of the distractions in his life. And he probably just started doing some of the normal things that we know we should do. He probably just started praying more, like a lot more. And he probably started reading and memorizing large chunks of the Old Testament because that was all the Bible that was written down at that point. And he's like, I don't really have the words to say, but, but God wrote these words. Maybe if I memorize these, God will use these like power in other people's lives. And he probably started taking his sin deadly serious. Deadly serious. Because when you willfully choose to sin, that like quenches the spirit of God inside of you. So he probably started to fight against his sin with everything he had. He started memorizing the stories of Jesus that the apostles would preach. And not only that, but he probably started actually obeying God when he heard his voice. Like he just did it. Like when the spirit of God was like, hey, do this. He was like, okay, I'm going to do it. He just started obeying. When God told him something, he started to do it. Why? Why? Well, it's because he wasn't content to take a back seat in this war, but he wanted to be on the front lines. And he knew that if he was going to be on the front lines of this battle, he needed power. And so he trained himself to become the person that Jesus bled and died for him to be a man of immense spiritual power. A power that wasn't his. He didn't cultivate it or create it or earn it. But he oriented all of his life so that he could be filled with it. And here's the question. Are we doing the same thing? Are we doing the same thing? Friday, okay, I was like kind of in the middle of preparing for the sermon, um, and I got like very distracted uh, because I need a new snowboard, okay? And so I'm like, it's Black Friday. I need to get on these deals, you know? And I spent like hours trying to figure out what snowboard is going to ride the powder, this amazing Midwest powder that we get, what snowboard is going to do that so well. And, so, and I, don't, I don't mean this is like a, a crazy indictment on me. I just mean like, Every moment of our lives, we're doing one thing or the other. And, and those, those hours, like, I don't think Jesus is looking at me and like, how dare you? But, but I think the question of, do I want to be a man who is powerful in the spirit of God? Those hours I spent doing that, they didn't make me more powerful. They probably made me less powerful. I wasn't filling myself with the spirit. I was filling myself with worldliness. And, and I just think if we look at our lives, the question is, what are we spending our time doing? And maybe another question for us is this, this. Do we actually want this power? Do we want it? Do we actually want to be on the front lines of God's battle against sin and death? Do we actually want to be at the tip of the spear? Do we want that? Because it's not safe. Like, this guy dies. But Stephen did, and he was. And because the Spirit of God was inside of him, because the Spirit that was inside of him was the Spirit of God, and because he was filled with that Spirit, when he walked forth into the world, he walked into the world with a wisdom and a power that the world could not contend with. I, I read a lot of Spurgeon this week, which is really fun to do. If you've never read any of his sermons, you should. They're fantastic. 
we have to kind of stumble through some old English, but they're great. And, and he, he preached a sermon on this. And uh, um, you should never read anything Spurgeon's written on the text you're teaching on, by the way. You'll just be like, you'll feel like really incompetent and bummed out that he's not the one preaching. But anyway, um, th- this is what he says about Stephen. And this, is like, this, this has just been like ringing in, in my head all week. He says this, now my brothers and sisters, if you desire to walk among the sons of men without pride, but yet with a bearing that is worthy of your calling and adoption as the princes of the blood royal of heaven, then we must be trained by the Holy Spirit. Those men who are cowardly, these, those who profess religion, their profession of religion is so timid that you hardly know if they've actually made it or not. Those men who go cap in hand to the world asking leave to let live, they know nothing of the Holy Spirit. But when, a holy, when the Holy Spirit dwells in a man, he knows the right and he holds the right and he is not the servant of men. Humblest among the humble in all things else, but when it comes to a matter of conscience, he owns no master but the one who is in heaven. Look what he says. He says, no child of God need fear the face of the great, for he is greater than they. Because God has put within him a spirit of uprightness and sternness for the right things which the world cannot bend, let its blasts howl as they will. And he says, I pray to God that we may learn the manliness of Christianity. For much injury has been done to the faith by those adopting another mode of procedure and fawning and cringing before the mighty of this world. But that upward glance of Stephen, it seems to say to us, eyes up, Christian, eyes up. Let your heart go to heaven. Let the desires mount. Let your whole soul fly towards heaven. And then with heaven in our eye, we may walk through the crowds of men as a lion walks through a flock of sheep and our fellow men shall involuntarily own our power. He's saying, if you have the spirit of God inside of you, you have no one and nothing to cower before. You have a power inside of you that is greater than anything or anyone in this world because it is the power of God himself. And he's saying, I pray that more Christians would take that seriously. An all-consuming passion for the name of Jesus, an all-consuming passion for the things of God, that was what consumed Stephen's life whether he was serving tables, whether he was ladling out food for hungry people, or whether he was standing before the most powerful authorities of the land proclaiming the gospel, this was the all-consuming passion that every single thing in his life was oriented towards. Stephen was a man who was filled with the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is not content with any smaller ambitions than this. The Spirit of God is not content to kind of dwell inside weak-willed, apathetic, sidelined Christians who have no desire to run into the battle that King Jesus has already won. The Spirit of God makes lambs into lions. He makes weak people into ironclad, unshakable, courageous warriors. Do you understand? You can have that life. I'm not offering you like an advanced Christianity. I'm just offering you what Jesus has bought and paid for you to have. 
You can have passion. You can have power because the power that Jesus had is the same thing that Jesus is offering you. He doesn't want to give you a portion of his spirit. He wants to give it to you in power. He wants to make you into the kind of person whose voice shakes the earth around them. He wants to make you into someone who is so spiritually powerful that the demons might actually know you by name. He wants to make you into someone who's so filled with wisdom and knowledge and power that the world can't contend with you and that they would be so unable to contend with you that the only thing they can do is kill you. And he wants to make you into someone who is so spiritually powerful that when the world would come to you to take everything from you, that you would be powerful enough to let them do it. Because the power that Jesus is extending to you is not the power to conquer over the enemies of God through brute force or political or social influence, but it is the power to lay down your life for those around you, just like Jesus has laid down his life for you. It's the power to be able to see and hear the words of Jesus spoken over you more than the words of the people who are shouting at you, condemning you. It's not the power to lift stones and to conquer God's enemies, but it is the power that while you are being crushed by them, that you would be able to use your last dying breath to forgive them and to pray for their grace and their salvation. That is power. Like that is unbelievable power to be able to in your dying moment as your body is being shattered by stones and you are looking into the eyes of people who are speaking condemnation over you. That is unbelievable spiritual power to be able to pray to God for their health and blessing and grace and salvation. There's nothing more powerful that you could possibly do with your life than to do that. Stephen was a man who was doing wonders and signs among the people, but the greatest miracle and the greatest evidence of his spiritual power came in the moment of his death when he was able to set his eyes above the throngs of people hurling stones at him, and he was able to stare into the face of his Savior in heaven. And in seeing Jesus and being captivated by him and being enthralled by him, that he would be able to then look back down into the eyes of those murderers and he would be able to love them. Because when he looked up and he saw Jesus standing there, he saw someone who did the exact same thing for him. The things that Stephen shouts out in his dying breath are some of the very last things that Jesus says. Lord, like, like receive my spirit. Don't hold the sin against them. As he's looking up at Jesus, he's like, Jesus, you prayed that for me in some of your last dying breaths. That even though I have your blood on my hands, you prayed that I would, I'd be forgiven for this. And as he looks back down from Jesus into the eyes of the people, he can love them and pray for them in a way that is an absolute miracle. That was the scene that Paul saw when they were laying the robes down at his feet. They were honoring him for his ability to conquer, but soon Saul, who we know his name is Paul, he would realize that this man who's crushed beneath his feet was the one with real power. The one whose blood was seeping into the ground was the one who had truly conquered. Stephen's death isn't a tragedy. 
It is a victory, an unbelievable victory, because it is in the next chapters of the story that the man standing over Stephen's execution would meet Jesus. We're going to read about him almost the whole rest of the book of Acts. His whole life would be shaped by this moment. His whole life would be shaped by this moment. Stephen's death isn't a failure. It isn't a tragedy. It is victory. This is what Spurgeon says. He says, I believe that every Christian heart that loves the Savior feels just like that. It's like the dying soldier in the hour of battle who is cheered with the thought that the general is safe, that the victory is on our side. My blood is well spent. My life is well lost to win the victory. Let Christ reign and I will make no bargain with God as to myself. Let Jesus be king over the whole world. I care for nothing else. Let him wear the crown. Let the pleasure of the Lord prosper in his hands. Let his covenant purposes be fulfilled. Let his elect be saved. Let the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Why? What does it matter if even though 10,000 of us should go pining through the valley of the shadow of death, our lives and our deaths were well spent to earn so great a reward as to see Jesus glorified. Is the life that you are living for worth dying for? We live in a really safe place. It's America. No one's standing outside with stones. but make sure that you're living the kind of life Stephen was living. I believe this with my whole heart. I feel like what this story has done is it feels like Jesus has just pushed out in front of me an invitation and he's saying, you can have this kind of life. You can have this kind of power. It's not yours, it's mine. I'm offering it to you. I want to use you. I want to use you at the front lines of my war against sin and death. Do you want to be part of that? I want to be part of that so bad. And I want you to join with me because think about Madison, this city. What would it be like if we became people filled with the spirit of God? Not just with the spirit inside us, but filled with his spirit. Let's pray that God would do that. Jesus, I feel like I have so much more I want to say and so much more that I was able to see this week that you've changed me with and God we still have time and so God we love you and we just pray that your spirit would come in power on us Jesus I, I just I do this but I think all of us God we, we just open up our hands and we just say Jesus we want to be your servants we want to live for you God whatever small ambitions we have for our lives we want you to get rid of those and we want to have the ambition that the spirit of God has and you've put your spirit in us. You've called us your sons. You've called us your daughters. And Jesus, you want to change the world. So Jesus, we pray for power because we don't have the kind of power we need to change this city. God, we pray for words because we don't have the kind of words we need to change this city. And God, we pray that our lives like Stephen's life would be just a presentation to the world of the suffering Savior on their behalf. God, that when we would go into the world, that they would see us serving them. God, that when, even if we experience suffering, that they would like see Jesus suffering on their behalf and love for them. And so Jesus, would our bodies and our lives be a pleasing sacrifice for you? 
God, thanks for this story. Thanks for your gospel in your name.